4, 1 through 20. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and his teaching, he said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on the good soil. It came up, grew, produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked about the parables, and he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may ever be seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like the seed sown in rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they fall away. Still others, like the seed sown among the thorns, hear the word. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and desires for other things that come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like the seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Uh, perhaps it's not surprising, but funnily enough, Mark 4, 1 through 20 is uh, omitted in the lectionary of a number of Christian traditions. Uh, I guess, you know, you could argue that a version of the parable appears in Matthew and Luke, and so maybe the people putting together the Revised Common Lectionary, for example, were just being efficient. But even when the parable gets a spot in Matthew, uh, the other versions are absent, and uh, I don't, how else do you uh, uh, say it? The, uh, uh, the parable often omits the toughest verses for us to hear and think about. Uh, you know, it, I, I have suspicions about the reasons why. I mean, maybe, you know, the Matthew text overall is a little easier to preach. Luke's account is short. Uh, Mark's account is judgy. Um, but you know, whatever the reason, when we've come down to thinking about how we have passed this text down uh, to the church, uh, at least by measure of the lectionary, um, I don't know, it omits, for example, uh, Jesus's first uh, answer to the disciples. So the, the lines, when he was alone, the 12 and others around him asked about parables, and he told them the secret of God has been given to you, but to those who are outside, everything is said in parables so that they may ever be seeing, never perceiving, ever hearing, never understanding. So uh, one of the people that's written the most about the uh, use of the parable of the sower says, and I think is a, a, a great insight, the result is that most of us encounter a text that does not actually exist in the Bible, and that it's particularly misleading for worshipers uh, to hear the edited version uh, maybe even see it printed uh, if you're at a, a place where they print that on the single page uh, and not recognize that you're reading an abridgment. And Jewel makes this point 
that I think is a nice extension of it, that when we read the parable, we've been taught to think about the soil and not about the seed. One of the ways that we've, I don't know, interpreted the parable in the history of the, of the church and revised the parable and how we present it in the lectionary is that, I don't know, we kind of take out the more judgy elements, the elements that speak to the question of parable and of secret and the stuff we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. And instead, uh, I don't know, we turn this into a story about how to be better soil. And we say, you know, I mean, you can imagine there's been a thousand sermons launched by the idea of what kind of soil are you? And are you rocky soil or are you deep soil or are you shallow soil? I don't know. I mean, it's a reasonable way of interpreting this parable, I guess. And it's just that it doesn't really directly respond to the parable as Jesus delivers it. Because as we've been discovering and talking about over the last couple of weeks, I think the hard question is, why does Jesus talk this way? What's with the secrets? What's with, uh, and the secret, by the way, is an idea that appears here explicitly in four for the first time. Uh, And if we don't read this as kind of a guide for what kind of soil to be, the whole thing starts to feel a bit more disturbing. Like Jesus is talking in the parts that often are omitted that he knows that the seed will be effective and ineffective in some soil. And he even, I don't know, sort of suggests that he'll be clear about what is going on in the parable to folks on the inside but uh, not to folks on the outside. Soil's going to soil and do what it does, after all, as the kids say these days. It seems to imply that um, Jesus tells parables to outsiders so that outsiders will not understand is the, is the toughest thing to work through here. Like he's trying to protect the secret of the gospel. Like he'd uh, come clean directly behind closed doors, but in public he's telling parables as these kind of elaborate parallels that... Uh, well, I don't know, Jewel had this like three paragraph long rant that I almost quoted the entire thing, but he goes through the kinds of backflips that people go to to try and understand uh, what the point of the parable is and how it is really about the kind of soil to be in. Uh, and when you read the whole thing put together, it really does seem kind of quite desperate that the ways that people try and interpret this. And Jewel makes the suggestion in the end that maybe the problem with the parable is that, and not that it's hard to understand, but perhaps it's a bit too clear for our own taste. Well, so let's look at the text and see. Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat out on the lake where all the people were at the water's edge and he taught them many things in parables. All right, so look, there's that crowd again. It's a crowd that's so big that Jesus has to jump on a boat to teach. And it seems like a minor detail and I don't know, kind of a weird one, but think about your metaphorical understanding of boats. Like, I don't know, remember what water stood for in the Gospels? It's been a barrier, it's been a border, uh, it's been associated with death and destruction and all things uncontrollable. So I don't know, right off the bat, we're cued to, by force of the metaphor, the fact is uh, Jesus is talking to this unruly crowd uh, from some place that, I don't know, is what, weird and wild. Uh, and you know, water, it should go without saying, is the best place to fish. So he's not only addressing the crowd from the beyond, but I don't know, we kind of have Jesus here fishing into the crowd from the water. Uh, And we've already talked about the kinds of associations that fishing has with like judgment and and sorting and selection. I mean, I guess if you want to be a literalist about it, you could say maybe there's just, it's too crowded on the shore. And so Jesus has to pick a boat, but it doesn't seem to be a particularly good way to read a story or, or figure out exactly what the gospel of Mark is trying to I don't know, tell us here. And in fact, 
uh, I don't know, remember your etymology for the word parable. What does it mean? It means to cast aside, to cast alongside. Uh, uh, often a term used for a naval battle. Uh, you'd throw your boat into the battle and fight the other boat. So I don't know, Jesus is like going to fish into or engage in a little maritime battle with the crowd by telling him a story. So uh, I don't know, there's this thing. This is where it gets really interesting here in verse 2. It says, uh, verse 2 concludes with, in his teaching, he said, listen, a farmer went out to sow a seed. So Jesus is, uh, begins his kind of telling of the parable to the crowd. And uh, the translation we have is, listen, a farmer went out to sow a seed. Now, the Greek actually has two words that the translators thought were redundant. So Jesus doesn't just say, listen. He says, akuate, idio, which means something like, listen and behold. Like, listen, let it hit your ears and kind of take it in. Now, that's important because it, it provides a clue to what Jesus is doing when he tells the parable. Uh, he wants the audience to listen, but listening's not enough. He wants them to listen and behold. The word for, uh, for behold, I do, means like uh, to look upon, to experience, to perceive, to internalize, to let an image register with you. I don't know, like Beth was telling a story the other day, or I was thinking about in my own experience. I like, I've took it, taken a lot of standardized tests in my life, and they, there were a couple times when they were really good. There were a couple times when they were really bad. And in each instance, I have a vivid memory of opening up the folder, since you'd get it in the mail back in those days, and looking at it and saying, did, that, did I see that right? You ever have this experience? Or like, I had this experience when, since we didn't find out the sex of the kids in most instances before they were born, when someone would say, oh, it's a girl, or oh, it's a boy, and it would just like take a little bit of time to register, because the implications of that are obviously pretty, pretty big. But I don't know. I, I don't know if it makes me strange, but and if you can kind of sympathize with the idea that sometimes you can see something, it can kind of like register in your visual field, but that's not the same as really internalizing it, as really being taken by it, as being potentially transformed by it. And so Jesus begins the telling of this parable by not just saying, listen, but behold, like let it register with you what I am saying. And so uh, that cue is, is an instruction by Jesus for us about how to listen to the parable and, and, and why it's important to listen to the parable in the way that we do. So I don't know, like Jesus then tells a parable about parables, I think. He's telling a parable about what he's doing. And so he does something like, I don't know, this is a nerdy way of saying it, but it's like a quick allegorical psychology of the different kinds of listeners. So I don't know, like the seed's going to hit the ground one way or the other. And uh, the question is, what kind of ground it, uh, it lands on. So Jesus tells us the story. Uh, you know, the farmer was scattering seeds. Some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places. It didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. When the sun came up, the plants were scorched. Others fell among the thorns and were choked out. Uh, still other seed fell in good soil and it grew up and it produced a crop and it multiplied. So I don't know, like, you know, it'd be very easy, Trey. I mean, you tell me, if is your soil shallow? Are you scorched? Are you thorny? Like, be good soil. But, you know, the funny part about it is uh, Jesus, I think, is uh, directing us towards something else here. So he finishes up this story, this kind of psychology of the different kinds of listeners by saying, what? Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. We are in our house serial plant murderers. And it's not because we don't try. Uh, I don't know, like, the, I, maybe I'm just making myself feel better for the slew of plants that we have sent to an untimely grave. But I like to think that, I don't know, the growth is not always 
on us. Uh, effort doesn't always translate into success. At the risk of uh, focusing on what kind of soil that we might be uh, may well uh, cause us to miss the point of the parable. And I think the point of the parable is not necessarily about this typology of ground. It's to see the beauty and the mystery of the seed. The point of the parable, I think, is for us to see that it's not about self-improvement. Uh, it has this kind of hard-edged point uh, about uh, God being the one who grows. That, but it's a stunning theological insight at the same time, that God is the one who makes the ground, who animates the growth. God is the one uh, who is uh, the grower, and it is not uh, you know, a question of whether or not we can choose to be what kind of soil we'd like to be. But in fact, the point of the parable, at least as I understand it, is that the seed is going to grow where it does. Whoever has ears to hear then is, I don't know, not about enjoining us to have better ears. The word for ear here doesn't just mean the acoustic organ. It means something like, more generally, this facility for sense prescription. Jesus is not asking us to have a course in active listening exercises. He's not telling us to reflect back what he said so we get or understand it. What Jesus is saying is that the seed is the focus of this parable and not necessarily the soil. I think what Jesus wants us to see is the farmer and the one who scatters as opposed to the place where it lands. Jesus gives his disciples a really interesting kind of take on this problem when the disciples hear him say, he who has ears to hear, let them hear. And so the disciples understand it. Well, Jesus, if you want people to hear, why do you keep talking in these parables? What is the purpose of it? Why would you do that? Why? I imagine there's all kinds of other questions they might also ask, like, why do you keep your identity secret and all those different things? But you know, the disciples kind of give Jesus the business for this. And he gives this answer, like I said, one not often included in the lectionary that is maybe too clear for us to be comfortable with it. And the only way I think we can read this is if we really think carefully about the word that is used in our translation. Our translation translates it as secret. And the word is not quite secret here. So Jesus says, when, or the, the text says when he was alone, the 12 asked him about the parables. And he says to them, the secret of the kingdom has been given to you, to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that may never be perceiving. Now, the word here for secret is mysterion. And so what Jesus is saying is that the mystery of the kingdom of God has been given to you. And the word for given, didomain, is quite explicit, like it's a gift. So the mystery of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Now, sit on that for a moment. You know, we don't often let mysteries be or, or, or reflect on them in their beauty and their greatness or see mysteries as a gift. We, we don't often think about the idea that the mysteries that we're invited into were invited into not because of our own cleverness or understanding or our own moral excellence or uh, because God chose us because we're awesome. If, if you see the idea of a mystery and you're invited into a mystery, what it should do for you is it should grab you and it should tell you, I have been invited into something that is not of my own merit or by my own excellence or by my own cleverness. I have been selected for something that I don't deserve and that God has invited me into it to be able to see it. And that I, that I believe that I see the mystery and I encounter it is not because I sorted it all out. It's not because I'm clever or morally good or saw the light, but instead my access to that mystery is something that is given to me like a gift. It's bestowed. I don't deserve it. 
the mystery here is not a secret. It's not like something that we shouldn't tell. The mystery here is something that we might scatter like seed and hope that others can see that seed as it plants in their hearts and grow. I mean, mysterion is a, is a beautiful word if you think about it. The, and this just like flattened me. The, the root word for mysterion, you know what it is? It's, it's a Greek word, muo. You know what it means? Shut your mouth. Isn't that incredible? The root word for mystery is shut your mouth. That we should sit and that we should let something come to us without talking our way around it. And in the traditions of Greek thought, something that was a mysterion was not something that was secret, like we'd hide from other people, but something that was mysterion was something that like would reveal itself to us often in silence. And that when we talked at it, we were talking the mystery away that we needed to, as Soren Kierkegaard said, be that truth emerges in silence before the absolute. That, that's the vision of Mysterion that Jesus has here. And it's, I don't know, like it's the difference between conceptualizing and understanding something and having a mystery revealed to you. And we don't think in those terms because we're taught to think, I think, that conceptualizing or understanding something is the same as having a mystery revealed to you. And I don't know, like, I got to thinking about it, like, you know, we can, I can't, but there's certainly people in the audience out here that have the relevant concepts to understand that there's a set of nuclear and chemical reactions that flow out of the Big Bang that create stars that lead in some way to photosynthesis in cooperation with a bunch of different cycles and they produce the food chain and the food chain produces higher uh, order mammals and higher order mammals eventually become human beings. And like, I guess we could kind of conceptualize or understand the set of processes that caused us to each individually be here. But that's not the same as understanding the mystery of the people who you love. That's not the same of understanding the mystery of Christ's revelation to us. We can conceptualize or understand the series of processes that got us to this point, but that's not the same thing as us understanding the mystery that there is love, the mystery that Christ abides with us when two or more are gathered. That's not the same thing as us looking at and internalizing and accepting and shutting our mouths in front of the power of the mystery that is the kingdom of God. Show and just not tell. More than seeing. Jesus wants us to behold, to allow the mystery to wash over us, even if it is potentially beyond our understanding. If a parable is a battle, perhaps its purpose is for us to surrender to it. Jesus says to them, don't you understand this parable? How will you understand any parable? And for me, this is the whole thing. So Jesus does this quick description of the different soils. The farmer sows the word, some are like the seed on the path, Satan comes and take it away, takes it away. Others are sowed in rocky places. The plants can't grow roots. When things get tough, people are done. Others are in thorny places and they get worried about life and the deceitfulness of wealth and desires and all those other things so they're not fruitful. Now listen, but this is the important thing is Jesus says after he concludes all these different explanations of where the seed might go, Jesus says if you can't understand the core of the mystery in this parable, you cannot understand any parable. In other words, this parable is about the sower spreading the seed in a battle for your soul who asks you simply to behold a mystery. And if you cannot shut your mouth and behold the mystery, how can you understand any parable? If you don't let it 
unfold and reveal itself to you, if you don't see the face of God in it, if you don't respond by saying, yes, Lord, who am I? You may have missed the whole point of the parable. I mean, we could talk about the soils for a second, but not just for the purpose of making us better listeners, because I think that causes us to miss the big picture. And the big picture is that when that seed takes root, when in the miracle of grace and an irrationally excessive gift, the seed takes hold, it produces a crop that we could have never anticipated, 30, 60, or 100-fold. That's the big picture. The big picture here is of a sower who sows seed, and that seed grows out of an abundant grace. But listen, what ties the non-productive soils together? What is it that unites them in concept? What is it that we have to read behind the uh, idea of there are various things that we could do to be better soil? Well, I don't know. What, how does Satan take the seed away? The text doesn't say. But I'd suspect that the motive is not seeing the value of the seed. And some people will receive the seed with joy, but it can't take root because their soil is rocky, I guess. For those folks, the seed cannot grow because something gets in the way. And still others, uh, you know, have desires or worries that occupy them. But when you dig, excuse the stupid pun, very far into each of these descriptions, it's not like people are saying, I am making a calculated moral choice to give the seed to Satan or to be rocky soil or to be consumed by worries. The core that unites each of the bad soils is this, that in each instance, they do not embrace the abundance that the seed promises. They do not see the possibility of the mystery that creates growth and abundance. Jesus is communicating here, but he's not communicating here, I think, to convince us to be better soils, at least directly. What he's doing directly is to say, keep your eye on the seed and keep your eye on the sower. We want theology to be about us. We want theology to be about our concepts. We want to think about terms that connect with us and move us. We want to grasp concepts we don't understand. We want to make things make sense to us in ways that are actionable. And all those ideas put us in the driver's seat. Jesus doesn't want us to be in the driver's seat. He wants to be in the driver's seat. And that's the case I think he's making to us here. It's not about you. It's about him. It's not about what you believe or think. It's about him. It's not about the character of the soils. It's about the mystery of a seed that might grow. What if, and work with me here, Jesus is the bearer of a truth that, I don't know, exceeds our capacity for knowing or internalizing it? What if our job is not to judge it, but to respond to it? What if the point of a parable is to knock us off our comfortable ground to encounter a truth that is simultaneously beautiful and terrifying and that it is so overwhelming that it makes our assent or understanding nearly irrelevant because it would be true if we saw it or not. What if Jesus is fully, as he claims, implicitly God and fully man, regardless of whether we recognize it? What is the point then of talk? What is the point of parables and mysteries? It's to make it about him and not about us. It's not something that we can understand. It's not something, but that we can't be rationally fully persuaded by it is not a bug. It is a feature. What if in parables we encounter and we see and we behold and we're asked to accept the revelation of a truth that puts us in our place in two times? totally contradictory senses, that it puts us in our place because it shows us how small our concepts are, but it puts us in our place because it connects us with the principle of all creation and the truth of all being. 
And if you think about a kind of communication that can make that apparent to people, only a parable could do it. Just like only a seed, when it finds the right ground, could be bountiful and blossom into something different. And, you know, I don't know, it seems like then the point of the parable or the seed or something is that it recapitulates the resurrection, as we've talked about so many times before here, that folks in the ancient Middle East would have looked at a seed as a little dead piece of plant, but they put it in the ground and praise the Lord for some reason, abundance springs out of it. And it wasn't because they may have tended the soil, I guess, a little bit. They may have put water on it a little bit. But for them, the real miracle was that out of that seed grew life and out of that life grew abundance and everything was made possible again. And maybe a parable is a little kind of seed that evokes in us the possibility of and the mystery of the resurrection of the incarnate God who has come to us on the beach when we have our net fit, wet fishing nets in hand. And he says, come with me and I'll make you a fishers of men. And what do we say to him? We say, yes, Lord. That's it. Not I have other things to do. Not I have another place to go. Not I got to put these nets back. Not I got to attend to my family. Yes, Lord. Because I have seen the seed that his face has planted in me something. And it is not about me. It is about him. That we encounter, we don't grasp mysteries. We don't understand them. We encounter them. A real mystery does not comport with our understanding. A real mystery should shatter our understanding. It should change us. It should be a battle for our soul that we surrender to. And the battle is waged on the grounds not of convincing you that there is a perfectly rational justification for what Jesus is doing here that implies a sensible theological proposition, but the weapon of the parable is that it is a a mysterious gift and it shows us the character of the sower and of the farmer and of a savior who loved us without justification and who has defied the laws of logic and identity and is bigger than any system of concepts or proposition who has died for us so that we might experience the mystery of eternal life, but it is not about us or what we know or see or can demonstrate. It is about the mystery of a dead seed that grows into a new world. Amen.